Today, some more things to consider as we try to keep a fresh faith not just stable, but growing. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. We spoke last time, recently, uh, about our faith being, you know, farm fresh or shelf stable and the dilemma between having something genuine, uh, but also that wears out pretty quickly. Uh, The freshness and enthusiasm that comes with young faith comes to mind. It's very real and very powerful, Uh, but as it grows older, sometimes it's hard to maintain or at least hard to keep it in a fresh state. And so we went through some illustrations of what that's about and, and also talked about some of the details of how it can show up in our lives and even the law of diminishing returns and a few other details like that. Not that that's an actual law. Uh, you can go back and listen to the previous episode and you'll know what I'm talking about. But uh, what I was looking for is a way to balance the need to keep faith fresh and so sort of young in some ways, uh, so that it's vibrant and, you know, kicking in us, uh, but also to bring it to a state of maturity, uh, and that both of those are really valuable. The idea of having a novel experience that includes surprise and exploration, all that kind of stuff, is one thing. Having a mature experience, though, that can also have anticipation and comprehension and investigation. We talked about how important it is to have both sides of that reality present in our faith. Obviously, when you're first coming to faith or when you're first living out your faith, you only have the fresh side, the juvenile side, the enthusiastic side. Uh, But as time goes by, you, you have to grow into something more mature, and yet you don't have to lose the the enthusiasm, or at least the the beauty and the power and the transformative nature that that fresh faith has. And so we talked about how to escape between the horns of that dilemma, between fresh faith and mature faith, and instead to have a faith that can be both, or at least that can see the beauty and power from both sides of the dilemma. And we said that there were two different ways to escape. One way is through the structure of faith itself, the way we live out our faith, regardless of the content, just in the fact that we have certain practices built into our daily lives or into the period of our lives or into the location of our lives. And we talked about it along uh, both of those axes, that is location, having places that we go that we regard as sacred. And you can go back and listen to some of the details about that. I didn't. I actually didn't add a lot of detail. We we were sort of running towards the end of time on part of the discussion about location, and I'll just add a couple of details to it. You know, I mentioned a worship space being a sanctuary and an altar being a place where you can pray, and 
uh, but also mention places of conversion, baptism, and uh, renewed commitments and callings, campgrounds for a lot of people or sacred spaces because when they were youth, they went to a camp, and that's where they dedicated their life to Christ or something like that, and, and those places become something uh, sacred to them. Uh, and when people start to change them, it, it's, uh, it's traumatic. It seems like a, a major loss. But in the other ones, I, I didn't really talk about it at all. That is, you know, the places where we experience birth and marriage and death, so much of that has changed. So much used to be the home uh, where, a, you know, a child was born at home. And, and some people obviously have restored the desire for that and have restored the practice in some ways. Uh, with some of the midwifery and things like that, that that go on now in a more prominent sense than they did probably 30 or 40 years ago when my kids were being born, for instance. Uh, but places of birth are sacred places, and we like to remember those places. Well, those have been replaced with hospitals. But hospitals themselves have taken on this sort of holy aura uh, to them in our society. And again, I'm not going to dwell on those, but because of birth and death especially, but also the more important things that we think disrupt our lives now are not sins, but diseases. And so getting cancer treatment or whatever all becomes part of this model of, you know, the hospital being our temple at the center of town, you know, kind of thing. Okay, so anyway, all that said, and by the way, you can tell that if you watch television or read very many books now, uh, the sacred places that are described in those settings are hospitals or criminal justice centers, one or the other. Uh, they're the sacred centers of our community right now. But I, but I do want to mention this one in the middle, <clears throat> just because we've lost a lot of the sacredness that we would associate with this. And it's not because it has to be sacred, but it's marriage. And I've talked about marriage in detail and how it is a communal event, and it belongs to the society. It's it doesn't have to be religious, not even in Scripture. There are no New Testament marriages taking place in a church. That's not what they're about. However, there is a sacredness to marriage that we recognize, and not only as believers, but just as human beings. It's one of the most important events, important events that takes place in our entire lives. And I do find it unfortunate that uh, even believers are sort of severing the sense of sacredness that would go with a place that you identify with your faith. And I don't mean that weddings have to take place at churches. I, I certainly don't believe that. Uh, it's fine that people use wedding venues and all that kind of stuff. It's all good with me. I, I don't, I, it doesn't make any difference to me. However, uh, to say this, though, that removing from it any sense of the sacredness of the place makes it a, a much greater challenge for us then to find those anchors that were a part of what was originating our covenant with the other person in marriage and so on. And so I think, you know, there's an advantage to that in terms of a sanctuary, but it doesn't have to be a sanctuary. It can be in the, in the form of the rituals that are engaged during the ceremony itself, some of the rituals that we talked about before or last time. But I, but, I, but I do think it's important that that sacredness be uh, woven into it and remembered in some way. And so anyway, that's the idea of location. And then period we talked about and kind of ran through a, a sacred calendar. I, I sort of ran through the Catholic calendar then. But I would say each of those periods is important and on an annual basis disrupts the normalcy of everything else that we're doing in life. 
so that we again give attention to the thing in our life that's supposed to disrupt everything, which is our faith and the way that we're living it out. And so whether it's uh, opening up the Advent season with and, and combining even that with the location, so we're going to the place where we worship or on an Easter Sunday doing the same thing or whichever days you pick out uh, in your annual calendar as most important for uh, remembering the value of your faith. So in terms of location, but also in terms of time, we set apart these moments that are sacred, whether the beginning of winter, the beginning of spring, or whatever it is that, that, that causes us to recognize it. And in our daily practices, we're doing the same thing. And again, I mentioned those before, so I won't take time to go through these in detail, but I will say they, they are uh, significant. I mean, these are important to your faith, that you have moments that are set apart to break everything else out as a part of what's influenced by your faith. That is, in the same way that we recognize in the Old Testament the Sabbath day, not so that we have one day that's holy, but so that we have one day that reminds us that every day is holy. That's what I'm talking about with this, that you know, having these periodic reminders, these disruptors. So in the morning, having a time of prayer, uh, you know, after we've done something we know is wrong, we violated a friend or betrayed someone or compromised something or whatever, having a time that we set apart to be quiet and to confess before God or to even speak with others and confess with them about it or the time that we come together as a congregation to share communion uh, and to take it together and to remember what happened for us 2,000 years ago that brought us together today. Those reminders, you can see, are pointing us back to the things that gave value to our faith to begin with. And every single Sunday when congregations meet together for worship, they're doing the same thing. It's not just the value of that moment of worship. It's the value of having a moment every week that you set apart to make things different. It is funny, I mean, when you get around, funny, I mean, ironic in some ways, that when you get around people who have lost the prerogative of those periodic disruptions, that is, uh, for instance, when I'm around older folks sometimes who are being cared for, and from day to day, their routine is the same. Uh, it's, you know, it's the, we have breakfast down here, we have eat down here, we do this, these, these activities at the end of the day, you go to bed this way, and, and that's it every day. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is. It doesn't even matter. They can't even keep up with which day of the week it is. And in some ways, it's heartbreaking and sad because you know you've experienced that. And one of the ways that we avoid that and that we learn not to live in the mundaneness of meaningless life is to have periodic reminders of what brings purpose. Uh, to our lives. And it's really important to stay engaged in those things as well. So anyway, period can add uh, freshness again to the things that otherwise would be stale. So that's what we were talking about. Uh, of course, and obviously, the challenge in adding structural elements like that, liturgical elements, for instance, the challenge in adding any of the structural elements like that is, the, is exactly the same as the original dilemma that we were talking about, which is how to prevent them from becoming stale. Uh, because even if you show up for worship on Sunday morning, but all it is is showing up, walking in, walking out, and doing the same thing you did before, then there's no disruption for your faith in that process. There's no opportunity to be refreshed 
or to reorient yourself to the things that had grounded you to begin with. And that's what makes the content part of this discussion so important. And that's what I really wanted to get to today, which is the other part of how to escape between the horns of the dilemma between a fresh and a mature faith, where freshness is immature and mature faith can be stale. Uh, trying to escape between those the horns of the dilemma, I said, you know, well, we'll use structure to remind ourselves of the beginning, even as we move for, further into our faith. But then the second part is actually based on the content of Christianity itself, without which I don't think the structure can suffice. You need this added to the structure in order to get there. And what I mean by this is the content of Christianity shaping our faith so that it can be both fresh and stable. What I mean by that is that we actually have to shift our model of holiness. And, I, and I, I'm going to speak to my people here. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know if you know who my people are. I'm not sure my people know that they're my people anymore. Uh, but I, the reality is, you know, I've grown up in Southern evangelical Christianity. I've grown up in Southern Baptist life and even among independent Baptists for a while. And in a, in, in a very, so I, people from outside of my immediate circles uh, would definitely think of me as puritanical and having all of that background that goes with the the moralistic legalism that I've talked about on the show before and things that I have left behind in some ways but still will influence me and will always influence me. And some for good. You know, I'm not, again, I we've had long discussions about this on the uh, topic of uh, whether our faith is centered or fenced, and uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode at some point. I'll mention it a couple of more times before we're done today. So the content of Christianity here, I mean, though, uh, would require us, if we're really going to ground ourselves correctly, to shift our model of holiness to what it actually is in the Old Testament. And, and it also means we have to shift our model of holiness away from simply being liturgical in order to be liturgical. A lot of times we think of holiness as the censers and the smoke and the, the murmurings and the quiet repetitions and so on like that. And those things can contribute to an awareness of holiness. That's part of the structure that I was talking about a moment ago. They can contribute. But our model of holiness has to move away from that as sufficient in itself, uh, from holiness as a concept of liturgy of some kind like that by itself. The things that God actually uses to get our attention are things we experience, and, and that's what I mean by getting our attention. So I'm not, I'm not going emotional on you. Uh, and if that happens, it'll happen on its own. But the point here is that the things God uses to get our attention obviously require us to experience them. And we experience those things internally. We experience them personally. We experience them spiritually. And believe me, I'm not ignoring the fact that we experience them communally. We experience them with other people. But I, we'll come back to that. The grounding here, the thing that has to happen in us, the thing that prevents it from being purely liturgical, from being purely structural, is that something happens to us. Something happens to my heart. Something happens to your spirit when we're confronted by God on these things. And, and part of that is a, a conviction that God gives us 
that's the word I grew up using for this, an awareness of painful comeuppance with the reality of our need, uh, that when that happens at a certain level, you can't suppress it. Uh, you simply can't hold it down. It, it it explodes within you or it overflows and pours out, and it's just dying to be dealt with, literally, in the spiritual sense, dying to be dealt with. And in, and in the same sense, God, when he brings conversion to us, a, a real transformation of who we are, it's not like we emerge from that saying, oh, I, that was different, that, that was interesting. You don't. You you emerge from conversion knowing there's something fundamentally different about your life now that you have your feet in a setting where you could never have imagined them being before. And sanctification is the same way. As, as God confronts us with things, and this is the one I really wanted to dwell on for a moment, because sanctification, you know, us becoming more and more like him, more and more holy, holier and holier, us becoming more and more like him is the part that we're talking about where our faith has to go from being this juvenile, fresh thing, you know, with freckles on its face, to being mature and having some wrinkles, but still being a magnificent thing uh, to be a part of our lives. And so in sanctification, you know, let me just, let me share with you one way, and one among uh, 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 countless ways that this has transpired in my life, but it has seriously affected the things that I've been prioritizing for the last three or four years. Uh, when I was, you know, when I was juvenile in my faith, my list of things that would make me holy, that would set me apart and sanctify me for God, was pretty simple. You know, let's just start a list. As long as I uh, don't read the wrong materials and don't use any cuss words and don't you know, allowing, you know, it was, I, I literally was trying, and I'm not exaggerating, I was trying to comprise a list of what I thought would come down to be 75 or 100 things that I could just check every day and say, am I still holy? And if I didn't do any of those things, and if I did do some of those things, then I could still say, yeah, I'm still holy. Everything's still good. I mean, I was a perfect Pharisee, absolutely perfect as a Pharisee in high school. Well, for a juvenile faith, you can understand a person wanting to do that. And I, I don't even begrudge it now. Looking back on it, I mean, at least I was serious about my faith and I wanted to live it out. That's, that's all fine. Oh, but my soul. As I got older and in different ways, and I'll, I'll cover this one that comes to me more recently, you know, going from creating a list where I say, well, if I do these things and don't do those things, oh, surely I'll be holy, to recognizing and I mean only recognizing it because God so brutally forced it on me, recognizing my own ignorance, and, and, and I don't mean accidental ignorance. I mean my own ignoring of people around me and their needs. It was such a, a, a long time coming and so perniciously hidden by my own soul uh, that I'm still I'm still shocked that God uncovered it at all and, and got through the barriers in me. But when I think about it in terms of race, for instance, and I, I know you're thinking, oh, no, another show on diversity. Well, I mean, honestly, if you're still listening, you've got to be tolerant of that to begin with. But secondly, this one is just so important, and, and I'm so distraught about how little I've done about this over the years 
uh, when I, I, I mean, I remember some of the elements of this, and there are, I, there are probably 50 different elements of this. I have no idea what preceded what and what order they came in, but I can give a couple of the big steps that I know were separated just with little illustrations of how they came to my heart and soul. And, and one is as simple as a movie. You know, just watching a movie, it was called The Great Debaters, if I remember correctly. And it was a, you know, it was a movie about this uh, African-American uh, debate coach uh, out in East Texas who wanted his debaters to debate with everybody else and participate in the tournaments on a, you know, on a, on a fair level with them and so on. And, and so I'm watching this movie because I, I was a debater in high school, so I'm fascinated by the concept of debate and all that kind of stuff. And the race side of it, I know, is going to be powerful and important, and, you know, I'll, I'll give my nods to it, and that'll be fine. But then I'm, I'm watching it at one point, and it has this, uh, this scene in it, which I'll let you, if you decide to go watch the movie sometime, which I would encourage you to do. I think it's, it's well worth watching. But it has this scene in it where they're driving at night, where everybody else could drive at night. It'd be fine. This is back in the 1930s, I think. <clears throat> and uh, they, they're, they're on this back road, and they come across a lynching. And in East Texas, this was a common occurrence in the first half of the 20th century, and they're so mortified. And I know it's just a movie, but it wasn't just a movie. It's a reality. This is a reality that happened to people so many times. And you could tell the, the mortification that was being expressed by the actors in the movie was fair, at, at least fair. And just the desperation to get out of there because the mob is going to turn on them and now they're going to face the same thing and they see the horrors of these black bodies hanging from the trees. And I, you know, so I watch it. It, it, it has an impact on me. And, but I, you know, tuck it away. Eh, whatever. I don't know what year that movie came out. But then I go and I do these interims, right? So I go and I'll, I, I don't do really interims as much anymore as I just fill the pulpit in different places, different times. And so I'm doing that at First Baptist Church in Fairfield. Wonderful church, great people, love them. And I pray the church is being blessed. And I was blessed by so many different members there. One of those members, very old man, and I'm, I don't know if he's gone on to the Lord now or not. But he, after I was there maybe six months or so, he sat down with me and said, you know, there's something you need to learn about our community or you're just not going to understand how people are responding to you. And I had talked about race a couple of times, a few things, you know, Confederate flag and their most popular restaurant, things like that, and just brought it up. And you would think that people would be greatly offended by things like that, and sometimes they are, but really as a community, they took it very well. And the church took it very strongly and, and, and tried to do things about it. I, I was only encouraged. Love that church. Again, have nothing but fond words to say about First Baptist Church in Fairfield. This one gentleman, though, took me aside, and he was probably in his uh, 90s. I, I'm not sure, maybe late 80s, early 90s. And he said, you need to know, you know, first half of the 20th century, I don't remember what decade he said. Uh, a bunch of people had gotten together a mob and had gathered up some of the people from their community, and they'd had a lynching. And he didn't know how many people had been killed. He didn't know how many had died. He was a kid back in the day. And uh, from what he told me, nobody ever faced any criminal charges or anything like that out of it. But, you know, it destroyed the community in that sense of trust. Even your, you know, the trauma isn't just on the people who experience it. Obviously, it is horrific and worst 
for those who go through being, you know, tormented in this way as a community. But it, it, is, it is a permanent scar on that white community as well, and it is still there. And for this man to have brought it up with me, I thought, you know, thank heavens he brought it up, but then I thought how few of us are willing to just bring it up again and say, you know, this is part of my history. This is part of what's going on with us, and that, that shook me. And then within six months, I was talking to a friend of mine who also serves in churches around the community, and he was in a, a church in North Dallas where I had also been north of Dallas, not in Dallas. And I won't name this church because it's not my story to tell. He didn't tell me directly. But a member of that church shared the same thing with this pastor, this preacher, friend of mine, who was serving them, that they had done the same thing and that they didn't know how many had died in that lynching that they had participated in as a community as well. And uh, he was trying to deal with the same thing. And I, I'm, not, I'm not telling those stories because I'm a historian on lynchings. Uh, read James Cone's The Cross the Lynching Tree and get a picture of it. Hear someone's voice cry out and say, how can we not pay attention to this? But that, those words, how can you not have paid attention to this? How can you not have responded to these things? How can you not have made this important to your ministry for the last four decades? Broke me and made me realize that what God wanted to do to set me apart to be more like him included things I'd never thought of before and that never would have made my list if he weren't willing to break me down and confront me with things that I wouldn't receive otherwise. The same thing happened with gender. I'm like, oh, yeah, I treat women great, and I'm always cautious about it and respectful, and this is just the way we are. And then I was serving here at Criswell College, and a young woman at our college, we had a prayer time in a, in a chapel service, and we got people to join hands together and just pray for each other. Hey, take, take somebody's hands, let them tell you what they need to pray for, and pray with them right there, right? So everybody did it, and it was great. It's always great. It's always an encouraging experience, blah, blah, blah. And then one, one young woman was weeping and said to me after the service altogether in the office, just completely away from the chapel service, said that was the first time that another professor had held her hands, had heard her prayer request, and had prayed for her, just like that, all done. And she said it was the first time anyone had touched her in a chapel service, prayed with her, treated her like anything other than a disease of some kind because he was willing to just put out his hand and take her hand and pray with her and care for her. And I realized that we treat women very often because of our rules, because of our fears, and because of our prejudices as if they are some kind of disease, some kind of threat to our holiness. And they are a threat to our holiness if we treat them that way. What a shame for us. And I realized that I needed to do something different to listen to and encourage women in ministry and their engagement in church and how we treat them and how we think of ourselves together as servants of God. And I have sat across the table from a handful of women since then 
who have been in some way abused in their past, and I am just mortified that we have not given better ear to it. And so I'm, I'm just pointing out, you know, in learning my own ignorance about these things, I wasn't going around from day to day with racist banter, making jokes about color, and I wasn't looking for women to subjugate or somehow neglect. And yet God knew that I was part of failing to represent him to huge swaths of his people in this world. And so sanctification took a form that I hadn't anticipated. And, and this, is the, this is the same kind of thing. This, this reality of sanctification and the things God uses to get our attention, that's what's present in that story in Luke 18, when the publican comes to the temple to pray, you know, the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee stands and prays thus with himself, I thank thee, God, that I'm not, and so on. The, the publican, when he comes to pray, and I'm not, I'm not doing the details of the parable, I'm not trying to teach the parable, I just want you to see the element that's present in the one who is being confronted by God and who does leave justified rather than the other, a portion of that story is about how broken he is, how the experience that he has is something to memorialize. He's standing afar off, will not lift up his eyes to heaven, beating on his breast and saying, God, be merciful. And it's in that mercy that we're going to, to find a lot of our, well, obviously, salvation. A sinner, he says. And so what we do in, and this is based on content, not just, not just the structure of our liturgy, not just having a place that we go or having moments that we set aside as sacred, but in those moments, making sure that they are grounded in the actual content of the faith that God has given us. So prayers of confession, not simply being my prayer of confession about the 75 things on my list, but my prayer that I confess to God that I have ignored the people that he sent me into the world to care about. When a person is publicly baptized, obviously that moment for that person is their statement publicly, I'm professing my faith and so on. I'm joining this community of faith and so on. But for every person that's watching it, we're saying, and I am in that community. I'm on that side of the river with you now and I rejoin with you to walk in those steps again. When we're taking communion together, the same thing. And, and Paul even says it in his letter to the Corinthians that when we're taking the communion, we cannot despise the actual message that's present in it, that we remember the death of our Savior in the communion, that we remember the thing that brought us together and the price that was paid, and that we're, that we're going back to those things that refresh the internal experience that we originally had. Uh, what, you know, what sociologists would identify as a cultus, a highly symbolic ritualized practice and so on like that, for us is simply refreshing our internal experiences in those rituals. Even the songs that we sing together carry us through those experiences again. They bring us back to those relationships. They refresh in our soul, things that are a little too painful to refresh normally, but in a song we're willing to have dredged up again and to remind us that a tear ought to fall. So, 
in our shifting model of holiness and moving away from just the structure of liturgy to something that has actual content to it, the actual content is love as mercy. And, I, and, and, and we just cannot hedge that. You, you, in, in, in Christianity, there is no getting around that love and mercy are at the center of it, and if they don't stay at the center of it, then you can count on the fact that our Christianity is going to lose its freshness or it's going to mature into something dead because love and mercy are at the center of what we're called to give ourselves to. So you know, this is the practice of what God actually deems holiness, not the reminders of our encounters with his holiness, but the actual practice of his holiness, his mercy. So in Micah 6, he has told you, O oh man, what's good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? In Hosea 6, he says it this way. What am I supposed to do with you, Ephraim? I'm paraphrasing as he says it to them. What am I supposed to do with you, Ephraim, northern Israel? Or what am I supposed to do with you, Judah, southern Israel? Your love, it's like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away, you see? Fresh, but then gone. Ooh, dawn was nice, but dawn's only a few minutes long. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light, because what I desire is mercy. This is how Jesus says it in the New Testament, steadfast love, covenant, mercy. His covenant and mercy and steadfast love are perfect expressions of what I'm talking about, and another day we'll have to have a conversation about why those are so interchangeable, because that's what makes it steadfast, is mercy. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so when we, if, if all we offer are the structures of the religion that we've learned to practice, rather than the depth of the mercy that's at the core of what we were called to be and to do, then our Christianity will grow stale. And in its freshness, it will remain juvenile. And, and, and let me be clear, the ultimate goal here is not to have a good relationship with our faith. I'm not simply saying to you, oh, heaven forbid you deconstruct. It's not about our faith. Our goal isn't to keep on experiencing faith. Our goal is for faith to transform us from what we would have been without it. So, and, and I do mean by our faith, our belief, and our commitment, and the truth to which we adhere. Faith isn't the goal. Faith is the means to a life which pleases our Creator. That's the point. And pleasing our Creator isn't an empty proposition. Well, I'm just going to do whatever God wants. Well, God wants something specific, and He said specifically what it is. And you can you can think of it, you know, as if you think of it as an empty proposition, you'd fill it in different ways at different times. But the reality of our faith is that it is to make us holy. And the reality of holiness is that means we will love God and love other people because that's how he defines holiness. And love means we will be moved by compassion to act in mercy. And by the way, if me saying that makes you pause and hedge it, well, you know, mercy's got to be tough, too, sometimes. You know, you got to have denim with the lace and so on. I know, have mercy. If we hedge our mercy in justifications of judgment, 
And we're just not reading the Messianic story, honestly. Nor are we applying it to our lives sincerely because Jesus did not go to the cross saying to everybody, (laughs) but I'm still going to get you. His judgment that comes in the Revelation, I mean at the end of the book, is not in any way a compromise to the absolute centrality of what he did when he laid down on a cross and prayed for the people who were nailing him to it. And he said, that's what we're supposed to be like. We're not the returning Avengers. We are the Messiah laying down our lives for the people who are around us. So what, so what, we, what we ultimately need is to make sure just of a few things, and I'll be done. Number one, that our faith is centered and not fenced. Again, that's the episode that we did, I mean, early on, first, second, third episode that we did ever. I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that one if you haven't ever listened to it. To fence in our faith is to presume that we can see the fruit of our faith's full maturity when we're only children. If you put a fence around it and say, well, I'm going to use faith to accomplish this or to accomplish that, it's just nonsense. You could never fully mature your faith. But if instead of fencing in your faith, you center your faith, as we talked about before, then that gives us limitless room for growth, but always tethered to, always grounded in what our faith actually means, or at least what our faith is actually supposed to mean. So, the discussion of structures for memorializing our faith is a discussion about putting together both, and so, you know, the the word ideological, uh, when things are ideological, it means they they give sort of a mythological origin to things, but it doesn't mean false, a false origin to things. So when I talk about our ideological faith, I mean the crucifixion or the creation story or the resurrection, these things that objectively happen but are the foundation of a faith that's very real right now. And what we do in the structures of our rituals and our practices and our worship times and so on is memorialize not only the personal elements of our faith, I remember when I believed, I remember when I was baptized, I remember and so on, but also the ideological elements of our faith. I remember Christ being crucified. I remember Jesus rising from the dead. I remember him challenging his disciples to follow in his steps and to be like him. And in those moments, combined with our personal moments, we get this origin and grounding that takes a fresh faith and helps it to be mature and still vital. So number one is that our faith still be centered and not just fenced, not just hemmed in. But second is that our faith center be real. This was the part about the content of Christianity, that our faith center be real and not just our preference, not just, I I like it when when I'm walking this way, when I'm living this way. Not, and not just something we're familiar with. Ooh, I like being around these people. They say the things I want to hear. We need, if our faith is to grow and remain vital, we rely on these three things I think are present in the upper room discourse that the, the Jesus promises, the Holy Spirit, obviously, that God actually has to live in us, Scripture, that, he, that, we, that we actually have a word to remember that the Holy Spirit brings to mind and so on, but just as vital, just as important other believers. Why are they so important? 
why in our faith is it so essential that we not just get on our knees, listen to the Holy Spirit, talk us through Scripture? What could be better than that? It's the Word of God clarified by God himself. And yet he says to us, without other believers, our faith will never mature. And that's the reality of where we live. Why is that? Because we need, when we're reading, we need the voice of our brothers and sisters who think differently than we do to force us to deal with things we would otherwise avoid. You know, we are extremely good at avoiding the things we don't want to think about. We are extremely good at it. And other believers, the ones that we disagree with, and I'm not talking about the children that you've brought to faith and they don't know anything yet, and so they're going to pull you back into immature. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about believers you know are just as mature as you are. They have just as much knowledge. They have just as much time in the faith, or maybe more. But they're on that other side. You know, they think about things differently. Having a conversation with them, being willing to read Scripture together with them and understand why they get it the way they do, it's transformative. Lately, in moments and opportunities I've had to be around brothers and sisters in Christ who are of a different color, who speak with different metaphors than I do, has been humbling to my own ignorance to make me realize how much I needed to learn. So we do all of that to to keep the center of our faith real, grounded in what God actually made it to be, so that we can keep a faith fresh and stable enough to keep transforming us into the people we're supposed to be, to keep transforming us into people who are a lot more like our Messiah than like we are right now. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.